because my worst nightmare, and I think maybe yours too, David, would be that what comes out of this is a church that believes that somehow it can train itself or retrain itself. And this is, of course, a group of mostly men, mostly elderly men and mostly white elderly men to somehow be the protectors of boys and girls, men and women who are experiencing sexual abuse. And that is such a completely far-fetched notion to me that I think if that were the outcome of this, I would feel a certain amount of despair. Welcome to this podcast, which is dated the 13th of March 2018. We are in the offices still of the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. I, David Greenwood, am here in London with my friend and colleague, Professor Julie McFarlane from Windsor University. By the way, it's fantastic to be in the same room doing this recording. I know, it's together. really, it's really it fun, isn't it? Before, I know, it's great. It's really fun to be here. But, you know, the two of us at least feel like we, we know one other sane person in the room, and that is actually a very nice feeling. <laughs> Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane with the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And uh, right off the top, we just want to give a little bit of a content advisory for this episode because it will contain some graphic descriptions and conversation about sexual abuse and sexual assault. So just be aware, and if that is a trigger for any of our listeners, please keep that in mind and feel free to skip this episode. But But we think it's a great episode. We do think it's a great episode, (laughs) and it actually... Our timing is rather impeccable. It certainly is. Because as of the date of this recording, and this episode will be out in just a few days, but just yesterday, Bill Cosby was convicted of uh, sexual assault, which is a pretty big thing for the Me Too movement and for victims around the world of, uh, of sexual abuse. This is a particularly personal an important one for you. So do you want to set the scene a little bit and okay, tell us about what's going that. on? And I also want to dedicate this episode to Andrea Constand mm. for being so incredibly brave as to carry on with her case against Bill Cosby. Thank you very much, Andrea. So you've already heard David Greenwood, uh, my lawyer, do his own little introduction in the witness room uh, a few moments ago. This is a conversation that David and I had right after I gave my testimony to the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse in in the United Kingdom. And you're going to hear the expression ICSA used throughout the testimony. That's just the abbreviation for the inquiry. You're also going to hear me use an abbreviation F12, which is the pseudonym that was given uh, in the inquiry to the minister who abused me. So F12 is the abbreviation that's being used for him. So in the conversation you're going to hear, David and I begin by talking about some of the evidence that we heard that day. This is a government inquiry that is trying to find out how there could have been quite as much sexual child sexual abuse within churches, within institutions, without anybody apparently taking any action about it for many decades. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to intersperse the conversation that you've already heard the start of, David and I talking right after I gave my testimony. We begin by talking a little bit about some of the other evidence that was given at the inquiry that day, in particular some of the unbelievable stories of cover-ups mm-hmm. of former abuse. And then there is also a discussion as we move through my testimony of some of the ways in which the church has used legal defenses to try to to fight down people who were bringing claims against them. Then we're going to talk eventually about where we hope the inquiry will end up. So let's listen. It seems that what's happened here is that there's been a blurring of responsibilities, so no one's accepting responsibility. And coupled that with uh, when the proverbial hits the fan, Individuals have been removing incriminating documents from files. We've heard evidence yeah. of that. Yeah. We've heard evidence of documents being withheld from safeguarding advisors on the basis that they know the person involved and he's a good bloke and we want to protect him. And we're about to hear later this week evidence of the burning of files at the Chichester Cathedral. This type of stuff is straight out of some kind of crime novel. It's Kafkaesque, it's isn't it? Awful. And, and we heard today about a letter complaining about abuse by um, Bishop Peter Bell, who is one of the, um, the notorious characters in this drama being found stuffed into a file that was full of other letters to Bishop Peter Bell telling him what a thoroughly great person he was. So this abuse complaint was just shoved into the middle of this file where goodness knows how long it had laid there for. Julie McFarlane has just finished giving her evidence. And I've been called as a core participant, uh, as somebody who has been involved in litigation with the church, and still working on a current case to give some evidence to the inquiry. Good afternoon, Chair and Panel. We're now, um, we will now hear from Professor Julie McFarlane. Uh, please could you take a firm or take the oath? I do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Whilst it's fresh in her mind, mm-hmm. it's fresh in my mind, I'm going to ask her as a, a valued witness at the inquiry, what uh, is your understanding of the ICSA process, Julie? Well, ICSA, just so everybody who's listening knows, is the independent inquiry on child sexual abuse, and it's looking at the behaviour of a series of institutions, including, uh, and this is the one that David and I are here for at the moment, the Anglican Church, although David's also involved in some of the other parts of the ICSA process. The idea of the inquiry, which is, I understand, the largest and most expensive ever in the history of the UK, the idea of the inquiry is to not so much convict in a, you know, public inquiry type setting particular individuals or blame particular individuals, although we've been seeing quite a lot of finger pointing, haven't we? But rather to uncover the systemic causes of what has gone wrong within the Anglican Church, given that there has been a culture of tolerance of sexual abuse by clerics. 
uh, this conversation took place in the late summer of 1975. Yes. So you were 16 during that time. Yes, that's right. So you met with him privately in his study, which was attached to the rectory. That's that... right. It was a room in the rectory. Okay. And what did he say to you during this discussion about what God would show you to do? Well, he didn't answer any of my questions directly that I had. I had some very precise questions about the things that I was was doubting, um, theologically speaking, if you like. Instead, he told me that God would help me and God would show me what to do. Um, And he then stood up. He was behind his desk and I was sitting in front of the desk talking to him, walked around his desk, dropped his trousers Um, and told me that I should kneel in front of him and take his penis in my mouth. So, Julie, um, it's important for me that this inquiry has been accessible to people who feel able to come forward. I think I should ask you, how have you found the process? I have been treated extremely kindly by all the staff here at ICSA, There's been a lot of attention paid to the needs of survivors like myself giving evidence to make sure that, you know, if we need to talk to somebody, et cetera, et cetera. But I still find the process at heart really annoying. There is somewhat of a feeling of smugness about the whole process, which is... Look at us, we're such good people, we're taking responsibility and trying to figure out what went wrong, which is a completely laudable aim. But given the damage that this has done to people and is continuing to do to people, it's a little difficult for me to hear somebody talking about the vagaries of canon law at length and believe that this is actually going to get to a resolution that makes anything better for anybody. Um. I mean, what did you think about what F12 was asking you to do at the time? I had gone to F12 and asked him to guide me as the person that I saw as my, if you like, spiritual mentor, the authoritative Mm. figure to whom I would turn. I mean, when I say I had doubts, I had doubts, but I was still very much a doubting Christian. I was still within that fold and I wanted to resolve those doubts. And while it seems completely extraordinary now to look back on this and imagine that I could have believed that God wanted me to give him oral sex, at the time that was indeed what I believed. Um, I had no points of reference to understand either the physical and sexual component of this, nor, um, if you like, the moral component Mm -hmm. of this, none whatsoever. Uh, I couldn't possibly imagine that this man of God would ask me to do something wrong and immoral. That was inconceivable. Yet at the same time, it seemed a pretty surreal experience. And it was also a very frightening experience because it was something so far outside of my experience. And the whole sense of then kind of moving back into this normalcy by talking to the minister's wife a few minutes later left me with this complete confusion over what any of this meant. I I had no way of making sense of it at all. Um, 
Did you tell your parents or anybody else no. about this? That would have been absolutely inconceivable okay. because I didn't even really know what I would be describing. Uh, I mean, even today, all these years later, describing this is, is difficult. And at the time, I had no idea what I would be describing. And I think that, and I can see this in hindsight, um, I immediately um, became, in part of me, concerned that this was something I had done wrong, that this was a wrong thing and it was my fault. And that was certainly in part of me at that point. So, no, it never occurred to me to so, tell anybody. So there was an almost instinctive sense of guilt and yes, shame. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly aware that it's very much like a courtroom mm -hmm. um, and it's set up like a courtroom. We have a panel of assessors who may as well be judges, I suppose, mm -hmm. because they're held in the same deference. Uh, this is not a discussion. It's an examination of evidence. At the bottom of the page, mm. the church and its insurer's representatives perpetuate discredited and offensive myths about sexual assault. Right. And in this, you identify details about what was set out in the defence um, and in particular the fact that it is alleged that there may have been inappropriate, and this is at the bottom of the page, mm. but not unwelcome touching mm -hmm. on occasions. Mm -hmm. um, what do you... What, what was your reaction to that? Well, I think I wrote, there is not a shred of evidence for this disgusting assertion. You know, I think that it is common knowledge that um, a strategy for defending sexual assault and rape um, is to allege that the victim... Um, invited or enjoyed or welcomed in some way the assault. Um, and that is a very common, what I would call, rape myth. Um, I probably shouldn't have been surprised to see it being argued in this case, that it, this was a not unwelcome. Um, but this, this just reinforces a stereotype that somehow... Someone, and in this situation, as I have already explained to you, someone who was, had no sexual experience whatsoever, um, had absolutely nobody to be able to talk to about what was happening to me, and found it a terrifying and disgusting experience that I was still being told was what God wanted me to do, to suggest that somehow I was welcoming what was being forced upon me, um, felt... Well, it felt re-traumatizing, to be perfectly honest. It's still an incredibly formal process. Um, you and I, David, had some questions that we wanted to ask this afternoon of somebody else, a bishop who was giving evidence. And although it has been set up ostensibly to enable people like me, court participants, to ask questions, the rigmarole that you have to do to do, go through to do that would deter most people from bothering, although you and I are not deterrable in this respect. As I understand it as well, you had a sort of part-time job washing up in a local restaurant and you were sort of just about to finish, I suspect, your A-levels and go off to That's university. Right. Um, what did... F12 do whilst you were washing up? Well, I would uh, have a couple of shifts a week usually in this restaurant um, washing up. Um, and uh, 
to begin with, what would happen is he would appear at the window that I faced outwards on while I was doing the dishes and start to wave and so forth, and I'd try to ignore him. Um, and then he started to wait for me at the end of an alleyway that actually joined where this restaurant was to the street of the rectory. And it was, it was a shortcut for me to take that alleyway to go home. Otherwise, I had to do a very long circuit. Um, these were the days, of course, when nobody thought anything of a 17- or 16-year-old woman walking around at night, uh, apparently safe. And he would be at the end of the alleyway. Um, and so when I reached the end of the alleyway, he would grab me and rub himself against me, and, and, and all of that would happen again. So what are the solutions here? Because my worst nightmare, and I think maybe yours too, David, would be that what comes out of this is a church that believes that somehow it can train itself or retrain itself. And this is, of course, a group of mostly men, mostly elderly men, and mostly white elderly men to somehow be the protectors of boys and girls, men and women who are experiencing sexual abuse. And that is such a completely far-fetched notion to me that I think if that were the outcome of this, I would feel a certain amount of despair. The third concern you had in your Church Times article is that the Church claims it cannot control how legal claims <laughs> brought against it are handled. Yes. Um, you don't think that that's the case, do you? Perhaps you'd like to tell us why. Right. So the implication of this is we just can't do anything. We're just in the hands of the lawyers and they're going to, you know, they're going to give us their advice and we can't do or say anything because we have an insurance policy. And pleading this passivity while on the other hand making public statements of repentance and, and remorse about what had happened to those who'd been abused by priests. I just found the hypocrisy absolutely infuriating. The whole thing is tightly controlled by lawyers, and I've had complaints from other uh, survivors of abuse that it should be much more focused on, on, on survivors mm. and you know, the questions that they want to ask. Mm. I mean, I don't, it's not that I don't think that it isn't important because I do, to grill, and I don't even mind a fairly inquisitorial style of grilling some of the clergies who've had responsibility during this period and have so clearly not lived up to that responsibility. But it's frustrating to see them then being able to kind of deflect attention onto, well, it wasn't really my fault, it was his fault, or, well, that wasn't my fault because somebody else lost all the files, or oh, then the media picked it up and that was so hurtful to the victims. I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on here because openness is not something that comes naturally to the Church of England. How has your experiences as a teenager impacted upon your life, emotionally or otherwise? Because it's, at first blush, you're a very successful professional woman. You've had a very successful academic career. You've got children. Your life has been outwardly happy and fulfilled. How has abuse impacted you? Well, the first thing I would say is that, um, like so many other pieces of this 
very complex puzzle. We all hold a lot of stereotypes about the way people will be if they've been impacted by abuse. Um, people are impacted in many, many, many different ways. Um, we are all impacted, but we are impacted in different ways. Um, I think that for me, the most important impact ha was that following that period of abuse, um, I then had two subsequent abusive relationships. Um, one of them, um, a very um, severely physically and sexually abusive relationship that went on for a period of 18 months. And I think when I look back at all of this, that there was a way in which, uh, and you will hear other survivors say this, um, that, for, that experience of abuse at the hands of the minister kind of set me up for these other relationships in which I had a similar sense of being in a surreal place that didn't fit with the rest of my identity, that didn't fit with the rest of my life, but nonetheless, I was trapped in. Um, and I was trapped in a, in a very real way. Um, I carried throughout my 20s, once I got out of the last of those abusive relationships, um, a great deal of guilt and a great deal of shame. Um, I, by this point, felt that it was very difficult to talk about what had happened to me because I wouldn't be only talking about the abuse by the minister, but these other things as well. And, you know, it was kind of like a serial disaster. Um, so it took a long time before I actually told anybody the entire story. And I mean a really, really long time. The thing that I would say that I still feel I'm probably going to feel when I go home tonight. Um, and I certainly felt throughout the process of bringing the civil case and, and now the complaint, um, is that it's difficult not to feel lonely. Um, and I say that despite the fact that I now have you know, a whole world that knows about what happened to me. I've taken a very conscious decision to be public because I actually want to be something of a, of a sort of example of how people can survive this. Um, but there are still moments at which it is intensely lonely because there really is no one other than me who can possibly understand what it felt like to go through that experience with the minister. We're next going to hear from one of the leading figures in the survivors movement. Uh, he goes just by Gilo. And I called him right after the inquiry released its interim report to ask him how he felt about what those recommendations looked like. So hello, Gilo. Thank you for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. My pleasure. It's, I don't think we've spoken before, in fact, have we? We, we have not. And I mean, we've both been no. aware of the work that we have each been doing and the importance of this issue to each of us, I know. So it's actually a very special treat to be able to actually talk to you. Oh, great. I wanted to touch base with you today because it seemed to me that on the day that the interim inquiry report comes out, 
um, you're one of the important people whose voice uh, we need to get out there. And I have something of a sense already of what you might tell me, but I wanted to know what your reaction was to the interim report. Um, to be honest, I don't think I have a huge response to it because it's it's a feels a bit like a damp squib. Um, <laughs> and could you explain what damp squib means for my North American audience who um, may or may um, not understand that expression? It feels like it doesn't add a huge amount to the conversation so mm. far. It's it's not a very powerful report. A bit um, of a letdown, I mean, would you say? I would say it's a little bit disappointing. I mean, I think some of us have felt we're not quite sure why it's needed an inquiry to produce a report like this. It, it felt like it should have really produced more. But there have some, some things have come out of it. Clearly, there's um, very clear recognition of failure of open and honest leadership across yeah. all of the institutions. I think that's come across loud and clear. And those institutions um, include the Anglican and Catholic churches, included, also, yeah, very much uh, residential yeah. ch children's homes and so forth. Nothing on mandatory reporting, which feels like a, a very great omission. Yes, and to me too. Can there. you say a bit more about that? Because I think that for people in North America, it's quite surprising and bizarre that we would not have mandatory reporting of child sex abuse in England and Wales. It is bizarre, frankly, and there's a, a strong drive now among survivors to push for this and Mandate Now, which is the campaigning group, has been absolutely superb in its, in its campaign. Uh, we yes. can't really understand why the Church of England in particular has kind of fudged on this. It promised to uh, support this unequivocally and then it sort of reneged on that. I'm not sure that I know why they are so hesitant to support it. I think it's uh, partly a, a desire to control their own safeguarding all the time. I think that, that seems to be perhaps at the root of it. Um, but anyway, the, the, the absence of mandatory reporting in the report does feel quite an oversight. Given that, yes, this does feel like a little bit of a letdown after four years, one of the ways you could understand what the inquiry is doing at this point is just testing out its wings, so to speak, that maybe there are going to be some more substantial, one would hope, recommendations down the road, including mandatory reporting, but also including the idea of some kind of independent redress body for child sexual abuse claims as uh, yes. in Australia. Well, I, I was going to say that that's been something else that people were maybe expecting to hear today, and there's mm. no recommendation or mention, because both you and I know that the Church of England's model is, is just completely broken. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a kind of corporate hand wash. Yeah. My sense of some of the uh, Chichester hearings were, we, we were seeing almost a procession of emotional delinquents. I want to just ask you in closing, because you have been so incredibly persistent and committed and diligent and brave from what's driving you because I mean whatever you might say it's not a comfortable place to put yourself right out there as a as a very public survivor I know this too so what what's motivating yeah. you uh, uh, Linda Woodhead who's um, a theologian and an academic yes I know her well country. yep she she highlighted I think about a couple of months ago that um 
the experience that quite a few of us have had has sort of radicalized us mm. and, and turned us into activists. You know, the way in which the church has tre- treated so many of us uh, across the board is one that does make you quite radical. It makes you radically quite angry mm. and um, determined to shed daylight on their structure. Um, and I didn't start out like that. I mean, in 2014, I, I thought that I was going to be treated fairly honestly and straightforwardly, and I realised that was anything but... In other news, on April 16th, the National Action Committee on Access to Justice in Family and Civil Matters released their report on Canada's progress in 2017 towards achieving the Justice Development Goals. In particular, the report found that there have been 64 new initiatives in 2017 to meet legal needs. There are tables on the Action Committee's website that summarize the organizations and institutions that are providing support for each of the nine goals that the Action Committee has been tracking. We are pleased to say that the NSRLP was listed as contributing to the five following goals. Addressing everyday legal problems, meeting legal needs, improving family justice, building capability, and analyzing and learning. The report also mentions specific initiatives undertaken by courts that advance the various goals. These are organized by province to make it easier to find relevant information. These initiatives range from free summary legal advice to self-represented litigants in PEI to self-help resource rooms in British Columbia. We highly recommend that you check out both the summary tables of the individual goals and the full report. On April 18th, the Canadian Bar Association published a new study on the role of lawyers in our justice system when considering the rise in the number of self-represented litigants. This report by Jennifer Leach is titled Lawyers and Self-Represented Litigants, An Ethical Change of Role. An excerpt from the report has been published in the CBA's National Magazine. The abstract of the paper states that, by focusing on the problems resulting from increased self-representation, it might be possible not only to refine the values and objectives underlying the professional rules generally, but also to ensure that the rules are relevant and reflective of the emerging and changed realities of the litigation process. We at the NSRLP like to think of these as challenges rather than problems, but the fact remains that maybe lawyers should be modifying the role they play in courtrooms to ensure that everyone is able to access justice effectively. In particular, the paper looks at how lawyers should be more focused on truth-finding rather than aggressively pushing their client's position in the current adversarial system. That's an idea we hope most people could get behind. As always, links related to these stories, along with links related to our main topic, sexual abuse in the Anglican Church, can be found on our webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. And that's all for jumping off the ivory tower this week. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the upcoming Irish referendum on women's health issues. 